This is No Stop Lights with Ken Ard. I want to thank you for finding us again. I want to thank our sponsors, Pepsi of Florence, Carolina Bank, Mickey Fins, Marlboro Pity Electric Co-op, Francis Marion University, McLeod Health, McCall Farms, Victors, and PLC Commercial. Um, and, yes, I do have shirts without hoods on them. Somebody um, commented to me, do you have a shirt without a hood on it? Yeah, I do have a shirt or two or three. But um, th- th- this this weird weather, the hoodie, is kind of the um, the universal the universal fit. I do want to make sure that our sponsors understand how important they are to this um, feeble attempt at podcasting. It's not an extension of the radio show, and, and I mean that sincerely. It is a work in progress. We're trying to to become, I guess, the um, the leading opinion giver of the PD region of South Carolina. It's not as much about Trump. It's not as much about Biden. It's not as much about the New Hampshire primary, the Iowa caucus, the eventual South Carolina primary. There'll be some of that, but the majority of what we're trying to do is highlight our region, its economy, its politics, its business, its personalities, its flair, its flavor. And um, and these sponsors are intimate, intimately involved in the community and unbelievably important to our to our business and economic and uh, political conversations that we have. Um, at times, we have people with official titles, elected officials, congressmen, um, uh, members of the General Assembly, city council members, town council members, mayors. Um, I have given this guy a name, whether he likes it or not, an official title, Ben Ziegler. Is a good friend of mine. He is the resident historian, whether he wants to be or not, of the greater PD region of South Carolina. At times, I try to convince myself that I'm a uh, a self-taught historian until I bump into Ben, and then I realize that I know very little about the history of the region, history of the city, history of the county, history of the um, and it dates all the way back to the Revolutionary War. So I want to thank Ben Ziegler, um, resident historian of the Greater PD region of South Carolina, for joining us. And no stoplight, Ben. How are you, sir? I'm well. Thank you for not telling them I'm a lawyer. Well, um, I'll, yeah. I'll let you do that. I'll, I'll, well, you're a man of many. Um, hats. I mean, you, you, you're, you're a board member at McLeod, which is a sponsor of our show. You are, your father was a member of the General Assembly. You are very curious mm. about politics. You and I could probably do a podcast on oh, the sure. Trump phenomenon. Yeah. Yeah. Some we understand, some we don't understand. A lot of our conversations are centered on that. You're a football fan. I'm a football fan. Mm-hmm. In the game of football, the quarterback gets a lot of the credit, a lot of the blame. Mm. The offensive line, as Keith Jackson referred to, with the big uglies. Mm-hmm. And they don't get their name in lights very often. When I think of the founding of America, mm-hmm. and I think of the Revolutionary War, my mind goes immediately to those who thought, Adams and Jefferson in particular, mm-hmm. um, the Hamilton, mm-hmm. the Hamiltonian Jeffersonian debate that led. But being in the swamps of the great PD was one of the most consequential figures in American history that I refer to as an offensive lineman mm. in America. Mm-hmm. Is that is that a fair representation of General Francis Marion? Yeah, I think it is. I mean, I think without doubt Marion played a very important role in the the final years of the American Revolution from 1780 to 1782, 83, when the war was finally over. Um, as you know, the, the focus of the war shifted to the South in 1780. Charleston was captured by the British in May of 1780, and the British strategy was to carve the South off from the, the North. Uh, at best, the North was a stalemate, uh, and the British knew that they really weren't going to change the dynamic without a lot more investment in the North. Uh, Lord Germain, who was the Secretary of State for the American colonies, came up with a plan in the late 1770s to shift the focus of the war to the South. Uh, The British believed, after a good deal of um, due diligence, they actually had hearings in Parliament. Uh, It's kind of hard to believe they were doing, you know, legislative hearings back then, but uh, there were some hearings in Parliament in the late 1770s about the mood of the American South. The American South other than some sort of uh, passing attempts to gain a foothold. Uh, British attacked Charleston in June of uh, 1776. There had been a little bit of fighting early in the war, but the South was largely uh, untouched by serious fighting, by big strategic uh, fighting. And there was a a sense that if the South could be consolidated uh, behind the British cause, that it would at the very least 
give the the British government something they could keep. Uh, there could have could well have been a, a fragmenting of the colonies, and some colonies would go independent. Some colonies would stick with with Britain, and and so the strategy focused around uh, starting in South Carolina and moving up into North Carolina and Virginia. And Marion, uh, by some interesting twists of fate, avoided being captured at Charleston. And in the fall of 1780, started his own uh, resistance in uh, eastern South Carolina, uh, famously went and offered his services to Horatio Gates, who had come in to try to retake South Carolina after the British had, um, had taken it in the summer of 1780. Gates sort of dismissed Marion, sent him off to be sort of a, a more or less a scout uh, sent him and his men off, and um, literally the day after Marion rides away, Gates' army is defeated by Cornwallis uh, at the Battle of Camden, and the same day or the day after, Thomas Sumter's defeated, um, his force is defeated, and, the, and for several weeks, if not months, Marion's really the only thing going in terms of a well-organized, uh, active force campaigning in South Carolina, and through 1780 and into 1781, he kept the cause of liberty alive for the most part. There were obviously other people fighting, Thomas Sumter, Elijah Clark, Andrew Pickens up in the west and the northwest of the state. But in terms of the major British supply line, what they needed to control uh, from Charleston across the Santee uh, up to Camden and then up the, the Great Wagon Road into North Carolina, that was going to be their strategic um, highway uh, to consolidate the South. Marion kept them off balance. Um, he never won any huge uh, victories and pitch battles. He obviously won some battles, uh, smaller battles, skirmishes. A lot of them were mounted skirmishes. Uh, but the fighting he did was very measured, very strategic. It was designed to uh, nip at the British to keep them off balance and to keep them from maintaining an adequate communication line and an adequate supply line into the interior. He did a great job at that. But more than anything, and we're starting to see this now, and you you went to the thought leaders of, of the revolution, and I like that approach. I, I, we're coming up on the 250th anniversary of the, of the revolution, and we've already got 250 groups popping up all over the place. And <clears throat> as I feared, we are going to fall into the old practice of what I call toy soldier History. Everything's going to be focused on big battle reenactments and bright uniforms and muskets and, and drum and fife and all that stuff that you know is aesthetic and, and gives us a sense of what fighting was like then. But we know what happened in all of these battles. It's not going to change our understanding. We know that we know what ha happened at Calpins. We know what happened at Kings Mountain. We know the outcomes of most of these battles. What we don't place enough emphasis on is. What were the thought processes? Where, where were people's loyalties? Uh, how were they changed? How did people uh, ultimately pick one side or another? And frankly, folks picked sides and changed and changed back. I mean, it was a very fluid, if not ambivalent, uh, situation in the South Carolina backcountry and other places for most of the war. Did we have? Do we have any <laughs> understanding at all? As you study the life and times of Mary, and I have to some degree, not the extent that you have, what made him different? Why why was he more important? Why was he more successful? Well, and that gets to what I was, uh, you, you talk about the thought leaders. Uh, Marion was a very subtle thought leader without actually publishing anything or being a political thinker. Marion figured out in the summer of 1780, the fall of 1780 and into 1781, that his role <clears throat> was to, and I'm borrowing a phrase from Steve Smith, wrote a great book called uh, Francis Marion in the Snows Island Community, Myth, History, and Archaeology. Um, and Steve's, one of his central arguments is that Marion, Marion's great achievement was to maintain what he called a community of resistance. He was able to keep most of the people in the PD, <clears throat> or at least most of the people in the PD and the, you know, between basically between Sherraw and Charleston, so down into the Santee. He was able to keep most of those people, except for the people to the east of the PD was heavily Tory, but he was able to keep the people who were strategically active and who lived in places that were strategically um, significant, he was able to keep them in a resistance mode. It's the same thing that you know Ho Chi Minh did in 
the late 60s in Vietnam. And it's guerrilla warfare. Um, that term had not even been coined when Marion was fighting it. Uh, but he was, again, very measured in not risking his force, not seeking battles that would, um, you know, one, one bad move by Marion and his small force would have, could have been eliminated. So he was very careful and circumspect about where he chose to fight, how he chose to fight, and with, with what British um, forces and Tory forces he chose to fight. Uh, but he also recognized that he couldn't push these people around. He needed them. They needed him, uh, but he needed them much more than um, they needed him, and he had to work with them. They were, they were militia prim primarily, and Marion was a master at keeping these people on side, you know, persuading them to fight when he needed them, letting them go home when they needed to put a crop in or if mama was sick or whatever might be happening. <clears throat> and his genius and why he was so effective was he was able to maintain this community of resistance that went a very long way in keeping the British from consolidating their hold on South Carolina and ultimately obtaining the strategic goal of, of carving off the South. Now, of course, Marion goes on in 1781 um, after everything had sort of stabilized and, and um, Nathaniel Green had come into South Carolina and put the British on the defensive, Marion became very effective working with Light Horse Harry Lee, who was Robert E. Lee's father, who commanded a, 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 a force of dragoons, continental uh, dragoons. He was able to work with Harry Lee to actually fight more conventional battles, laid siege and, and captured several important um, uh, outposts, British outposts along that road from Charleston up to uh, to Camden. So Marion was able to flip uh, to a more formal. And Marion had he had come through the Continental Army. He had fought in the French and Indian War. Uh, he was a lieutenant colonel at the time. Charleston fell. You know, Marion started as a not a professional soldier, but he was a trained soldier. He wasn't some militiaman. And uh, of course, the Revolution uh, destroys the, the American armies destroyed in the Revolution. At, uh, in 1780 at Charleston, and Marion has to become a partisan and to be, become an effective partisan commander. He's way more famous for being a partisan commander and really shows his genius. But then he almost goes, he comes full circle. He goes back toward the end of the war. He's still commanding militia, but he's commanding militia in the context, and, and Continentals as well, in the context of uh, more formal, conventional 18th century military operations. Ben, I'm going to give you credit or place blame. I'll, I'll let, we'll, we'll decide as the debate goes on to the conversation carries on. You came to me when I was a member of Florence County Council in about 2007 or 8, maybe maybe 9, and wanted to fund a statue mm -hmm. to be placed at Fenner's Landing in Johnsonville to commemorate mm -hmm. and, and, and recognize the contributions that General Marion made to the revolution, to the American experience. And I began down the road of trying to better understand, you know, the contributions, the mm -hmm. story of Marion. I'd understood him to be kind of an expert guerrilla warfare. You, mm -hmm. you just said something mm -hmm. similar to that. But he was also a very ethical man. Very much so, yeah. R R Sumter aggravated him a lot. He believed that Sumter, <laughs> Sumter would— was, Sumter was not an ethical man. Well, I mean, really. and so, so explain that. I mean, Marion has a reputation as being a guerrilla warfare expert, yeah. win at all cost. But he balanced that with the ethics of war. Mm. If ethics has a war, Marion yeah, paid yeah, respect yeah, yeah. To, the, to those ethics. Yeah, he he. Uh, I don't have the site for this. And by the way, I'm gonna I'm gonna um, I'm going to uh, um, preface everything I say today on the fact that you called me this afternoon to come and, and talk. Sure. Uh, I haven't had time to sort of bone back up. Nah, on some of the I'm I like not. To quote, th th there's a lot of things fame, I worry about. That's there, not. There's one. a very famous quote of Marion, whether he said it to Sumter in a letter or whether he said it of Sumter, that he would wade through rivers of blood to achieve a victory, something along those lines. Um, Sumter was very reckless with the lives of his men. He was uh, very um, impetuous and, and not afraid. Everything Marion, as much as Marion was circumspect and careful, Sumter was brash and um, aggressive and, and, um, and reckless. Um, Marion's ethics, and, and we really ought to talk as well about the sort of image of Marion that emerges in the 19th century because so much of the significance of Marion doesn't have to do with his achievements, his real achievements during the Revolution. They come from how he came to be seen in the 19th century after he was dead. We, and we've talked about this before. <clears throat> but Marion 
time after time was uh, would defy his own men to protect prisoners. Uh, he would defy commanders. Uh, at the end of the war, he was ordered to go and uh, fire on or attack uh, British soldiers that were filling uh, barrels of water in the Cooper River. They were leaving. They were evacuating, going home. We'd won the war. And Marion was, it was perhaps suggested to him. I don't know that he would ever defy a, a, an order, a direct order. It was suggested to him that they go attack him. And he said, why would I do that? These people are trying to go home. I don't, I don't want to kill people that I don't have to. He just had a great sort of uh, streak of, of magnanimity, of kindness, of mercy. Now, a lot of that got played up again after Marion's death. And we've talked about the biography, biographies of Marion, Parson Weems, uh, William Doby and James, uh, and then finally William Gilmore Sims from 1811 up to the 1840s. Um, several important biographies of Marion are published. And also artists begin to paint Marion and represent Marion. And it's an interesting, um, I mean, there's a great book to be written about this or a PhD um, dissertation about the development of art and literature, history, myth, regarding Marion, because Marion was recognized in his time as a valuable participant in the war in South Carolina. And if you read what people like Nathaniel Green said of him or any of his contemporaries, um, they said he was a tireless, hard campaigner, endured many privations, slept on the ground in the cold. Uh, you know, he did the things that, that most even even professional soldiers didn't want to do. But he wasn't cast as this great hero. He wasn't a Washington, let's say. Um, <clears throat> by the 18, um, middle of the, uh, well, by Parson Weems' time, by 1810, 1820, he's literally referred to as the Washington of the South. And what changed Marion from being sort of someone who was recognized as a significant figure to somebody who was a great hero has more to do with society after his death than Marion's actual contributions during the war. A uh, couple of dynamics at play, I think, are very interesting. I think first and foremost, uh, Eli Whitney invents the cotton gin in the 1890s. And by the 18-teens and 20s, the children and grandchildren of the people who fought with Marion, who were militiamen during the Revolution, are getting rich and they're building big houses and having their portraits painted. And they need a myth of origin. They need someone to stand out. Who are we? What do we stand for? Well, Marion's a great sort of example of that. And when you consider the fact that at the end of the war, Marion commanded all of the militia in South Carolina. And it's from South Carolina that most of the people who migrate to Mississippi, Alabama, um, Louisiana uh, come from, a good many of them, they take that sort of myth of origin with them as they go out and populate the South. So Marion becomes this figure. Well, what does he stand for? Well, we're also in the 19th century, and we're leading up to the Civil War several decades later. <clears throat> the distinctions between the North and the South become more apparent, and the South is frequently being, uh, more and more frequently as you get into the 1840s and 50s, being criticized for slavery. And this, there's a sense of the South being embattled and the South being under attack. And Marion comes to exemplify this sort of spirit of resistance the South is standing up against people who would invade us and people who would uh, desecrate our homes and our hearths and our families. And, of course, you get into the Civil War, and that becomes, you know, literally true. So, you know, Marion becomes a glorified figure uh, throughout the 19th century through these biographies, through art, through things like Francis Marion and Sweet Potato Dinner, Frank Marion Crossing the PD, all those artworks that were in the— the great exhibit. Are, are those, a, I'm going to interrupt, are, are those embellishments as far as you're concerned? You know, we went through, um, when we were planning the exhibit at the Florence Museum, Stephen Mott, who's really an expert on the art piece of this, he's a curator at the Florence Museum, he and I talked a lot about, okay, where does this come from? Um, so many things, and you really get into the weeds, but uh, Marion's chief lieutenant, Peter Ory, wrote a, a biography of Marion that he uh, unadvisedly turned over to Parson Weems to publish. Parson Weems embellished it. Weems was the man who did George Washington the Cherry Tree. He was trying to create an American national mythology. Um, and Ori says to Weems or writes to him, you know, this t this isn't my history but your romance. He romanticized everything. But there were there were kernels of truth in Ori's um, 
biography that made it into Weems's romance. Uh, William W. and James, who fought under Marion, was a judge, published a biography in the 1820s. There are things there that match things that are in Weems, and then there are things that are in um, um, William Gil Gilmore Sims's biography in the 1840s that match all of them, and then there are things from correspondence and other sources. But um, a lot of it's embellished. Um, but I think they're core stories that probably happened. Uh, France, the sweet potato dinner may or may not have happened. It appears something like it appears in all three of the biographies. Uh, not so much in James, but uh, there may, and we know there was a prisoner exchange that took place on Snow's Island. Um, and the, the person who went onto the island, the British soldier, was blindfolded and taken into Marion's camp. So something like that may have happened, but things like a, another famous painting that hangs outside the Senate chamber in the State House, uh, William Washington's Marion at Birch's Mill, and of course Birch's Mill is just there at Pamplico in, in our own Lawrence County. Um, we know that happened. Um, that, that is the incident that he portrays is, is, is very well known, and uh, we know Marion was there at the time. We know there were uh, Tories coming in to surrender. Uh, we even know the name of the person he saved, uh, a man named Butler, Captain Butler, who was particularly obnoxious Tory in the Mars Bluff area who had committed some atrocities. Marion's men wanted to string him up. Marion had said, no, if you come in to surrender, you won't be molested. His men said, we hear you, but we're, we're not going to abide by that. He said, basically, you're going to have to come through me if you want to get to him. So some things are embellished, but some things have a core truth to them. And at the end of the day, Marion was as you started out with, was an enormously consequential figure in terms of his leadership during the war, how he led, um, and, you know, what he came to stand for had its good aspects and its bad aspects. Ben, is, is there any historical accounting of what the thought leaders felt about Marion? Were they aware of his contributions? Were they aware how, I mean, I've heard it referred, he didn't win the Revolutionary War, but he may have stopped us from losing the Revolutionary War. Is there any historical indications of what some of these thought leaders knew about Marion and his contributions to the American cause? You know, the, the word that seems to be used the most when you read his contemporaries on both sides. I mean, I'll give you an example. <clears throat> Bannister Tarleton, who's Marion's great nemesis, the man that gave him the, the sobriquet, the, the swamp fox, or the damned old fox, as he called him. He never mentions Marion. He write, writes a two-volume History of the American Revolution never mentions Marion. Now, he may have had good reasons for being sore and not wanting to mention him. But you don't find a lot of um, his contemporaries talking about his contribution. The word that's used the most is he was a valuable commander. He was a, you know, yeoman service. He, he led the militia and they suffered. And there was a real, um, one thing you got to remember, Ken, is that commanding militia, and of course, you have to understand that in the the, the American army the American army had two flavors. You had militiamen who were who fought under the command of local militia uh, leaders and in local militia companies all over South Carolina, Virginia, Maryland, North Carolina. Uh, they were uh, by far the lesser of the two fighting forces. Then you had the Continental Army. These were regiments that were created by the Continental Congress, led by um, officers that had commissions from the Continental Congress. And they were the more professional, much more professional and disciplined of the two. Militia, you know, being in the militia was like being in the volunteer fire company uh, back in the 18th century. Everybody had to be in the militia in, in many colonies. And you, uh, you know, you had to go to muster, and musters usually were, you know, turkey shoots and eating barbecue and, and drinking corn liquor as much as they were training. And the militia were kind of a joke. And in many battles, and including the Battle of Camden, the militia would break and run as soon as they saw British regulars with their bayonets fixed. So commanding militia was seen, you know, militia was seen as inferior to the professional army, or at least the Continental Army. Um, and it was seen as a, as a really unpleasant thing to do to have to command militiamen because they could come and go for the most part as they pleased. And... Um, Peter Ory says of Marion when, when they put him over the militia during this critical period that he really took one for the team, so to speak, that he always saw commanding militia as being a, a skulking command, that you couldn't really exercise discipline over these people. They were not people that, you know, they weren't good material to work with. So all that being said, the uh, somebody who was a leader of militia 
wasn't going to be that well regarded by the professionals, by the Washingtons, by the Greens. And Nathaniel Green thought the world of Francis Marion and recognized, if anybody recognized his contributions, it would be Nathaniel Green and it would be Light Horse Harry Lee because they actually were with him and fought with him and knew, knew how, uh, how his genius um, uh, really helped the cause. But for the most part, the, the establishment wasn't really going to recognize him. But keep in mind, when you get into the 1820s, this is the age of Andrew Jackson. This is the age of the westward expansion. This is the age where the American, uh, you know, common man becomes more of a, of a fixture in our imaginations. Marion's the great military leader of the common man, ugly little short. And, and, and that's where I'm headed. It's easy to put Washington in a portrait. Right. A tall, stately general leading his troops across the Potomac. I mean, you've seen the the visual. I've seen the visual. It's my understanding that some of the paintings that were commissioned were commissioned to not properly articulate Marion. He was a scrawny, yeah. uh, not not impressive person. No swarthy. Uh, but some of the paintings don't don't. Right. I mean, they, they well, make him look a little more statuesque. Yeah, ironically, uh, John Blake White's um, Francis Marion inviting the British officer to to dinner. Uh, known as Francis Marion and Sweet Potatoes, um, John Blake White knew Marion as a boy, but he paints him. He looks like Tom Cruise in the in the painting. Now there are other paintings that are um, um, un- unattributed that may be contemporaneous with that, and I've I've showed you one of them, the mm-hmm. one that's at the Oakland Club down in Pineville, um, that show Marion as he looked, not an attractive person. Um, and then by the end of the nineteenth century. You know, he's, he's made to look like a matinee idol um, to some extent. But then there are some that go back to the descriptions. We have very good descriptions of his appearance from people like uh, William Dobie and James who fought with him. He describes him in detail down to what he wore. Um, um, you know, very, we know, but he was not, more often than not, he was portrayed as being a, a, an attractive, um, heroic-looking person. <clears throat> Leave it to me to, to, to be a hayseed and bring NASCAR into the conversation, talking about Marion and the Revolutionary War and thought leaders. If you go to Level Cross, North Carolina, they believe the Petties were oh, the yeah. greatest. Yeah. If you go to Hueytown, Alabama, they right. believe the Allison. If you go to Dawsonville, Georgia, they believe Bill Elliott, the Elliott. and the PD. Well, and, and that's where I'm headed. Yeah. Could, could Marion be our favorite son? Mm-hmm. Could we be embellishing some of his legacy, some of his contributions? Just like we think Kelly Yarborough was better yeah. than the Allisons oh, yeah. or the no, Petties. No, Are we guilty of that? I think every— And is that okay? I think that's okay. That is that is the way the world works. That's the way people are. That's the way groups of people are. That's regionalism. Um, but you strip away all that and you look at the facts, and the facts are Marion was a significant leader at a significant time during the Revolution and a leader in a style of fighting and in a strategic— um, uh, objective within you know the strategic objectives he had were very uncharacteristic of of his age. I mean, he grasped hold of something I don't a natural say, ahead of his time. Yeah, well, you know, he had he um, had fought in the French and Indian War, had distinguished himself um, in the French and Indian War um, fifteen years before the Revolution, and uh, learned. You know, they were up fighting the Cherokees. He and William Moultrie, who was his commanded his regiment during the French and Indian War, or as we called it in South Carolina, the Cherokee War. Uh, they were ambushed a couple of times, and Marion led the, the uh, charge or, or led the, the, the their regiment out of these ambushes in the mountains of North Carolina. And um, he understood guerrilla warfare, but he also had a much more subtle understanding of what what's my objective here you know, if you were a if you were um i mean nathaniel green george washington cornwallis rawdon clinton your objective was to go out and find the enemy fight them in a pitch battle and and and, and beat them and marion knew he was dealing with something much more subtle and something much more modern uh, and that was you don't want to use the phrase hearts and minds but uh marion again was trying to keep that community of resistance together. He knew that if the British couldn't, you know, make good on their bet that the people of South Carolina would rally to the cause of, of the king, if they couldn't do that, they were out of luck. And so just keeping that from happening, keeping 
these communities on site, keeping them in a situation where the British couldn't rely on these supply chains, couldn't rely on these lines of communication. Uh, that was what his objective was. He wasn't out there trying to win some great battle, and he was he was operating in a context that was totally foreign to these European armies. They thought that all you had to do was go out and defeat the opposing army, and then you just took over and everything, you know, suddenly it was your uh, your government, your land, you know, you were in charge. And they severely miscalculated when they got into the backcountry of South Carolina because there wasn't any governmental infrastructure to take over. You could win a battle, but that didn't mean the people who lived in the scattered communities around supported you. Uh, I think a lot of them didn't care, but a lot of them um, uh, were, for a variety of reasons, were turned against the British cause uh, in 1780 and 1781. Did Marion know that the British Army would struggle with that reality, that it was very unique and different from what they were accustomed to? What Was Marion aware? I think he had been in the Continental Army long enough. You know, he, he stayed in South Carolina and around Savannah uh, throughout his career in the Continental Army from 1775 to 1780 when he embarks on his partisan career so but it, but so he knew how army you know they were drilled and they studied and he knew how um, European armies fought and he had a good sense of what their weaknesses were and what their limitations were and I would like to think Marion understood you know what is it that they want what it what how will they win um, they're not going to win until they can turn the people uh, to their side and have the people rally around them if they're always on the defensive, uh, you know, if you've got someone like Bannister Tarleton uh, or Cornwallis, you know, basically uh, marching around South Carolina um, uh, on the defensive, which is the way things sort of turned out toward the end of 1781, um, starting, you know, with the Battle of Calpins and ending with the Battle of Guilford Courthouse in, in North Carolina, um, you're not going to win because you, you're not going to be able to consolidate. What have you got? And I think, a, and Marion knew that. Marion knew that. You know, this wasn't a sort of um, uh, hard, objective-based fight. This was a fight to sort of keep the invader off balance, and um, and that's what he did. What do we know? I mean, you, you've got kind of a side job as an archaeologist. Right. Ben's always invited me to digs, and I mean, I've gone out a couple of times digging cannons out of the out of the river, and I mean, he's very uniquely interested and qualified to talk about that. But I go back to the Marion statue. Yeah. And the, the, the Fenner's Landing. Yeah. What do we know about the um, the important sites in our region, in our area, relating to Marion? Well, it's, great, it's a great question. It's a very timely question because today would, would have been the first day of a, a four-day archaeological expedition um, project uh, on Snows Island. Uh, about a dozen highly trained battlefield archaeologists were going to be on Snows Island um, looking for Marion's camp. That's a project that I've been involved in for a number of years, and we had everybody lined up from USC, DNR, private archaeologists all volunteering their time to come, and um, uh, we got rain and we got a high river, and it's just not conducive to a thorough search. So we've postponed that until February. Uh, but we've learned a lot in the past 20 years. I, I chaired an entity called the Francis Marion Trail Commission, and our first objective was to assess archaeologically. Uh, the, our overall objective, our larger objective, was to create a heritage tourism product, as they call it, a, a heritage tourism experience centered around Marion and his campaigns. And so the first thing we had to do was go out and find as many sites as we could. There were some we knew. There were some we knew with general area. Uh, but we certainly didn't know um, exactly where all the sites were and what their boundaries were and that sort of thing, or if they even could be found or if they existed. So uh, Steve Smith, who I've referenced earlier, uh, who wrote a great book about Marion that actually came out of this um, work, Steve was hired by the Frail Commission. He's a Ph.D. professor at, at USC in archaeology and a great battlefield archaeologist, went out and uh, found many of the important sites, uh, even some I never thought we would find, like the Battle of Blue Savannah, which was basically a little cavalry skirmish I think Steve found the site of it. It's just amazing that, that so little physical evidence would come out of something like that. But he was able to find enough spent musket balls and gun parts and things in an area to be able to say this is, you know, some sort of conflict took place here and this is generally the area that's 
traditionally been the site of the battle. But, um, you know, there are places like uh, Dollar's Tavern, Black Mingo, which was a famous victory. That was actually fought around a small settlement on Black Mingo Creek. We know exactly where that is. Uh, of course, we found the, the most famously, we found the um, camp at Dunham's Bluff, which is across the PD River from um, Snow's Island and Experts feel pretty sure that it guarded the approach to Snow's Island. There was a little readout there, a little earthwork, uh, and found just a very rich uh, 18th century, late 18th century military camp, which had to be Marion. Uh, and a number of the other battle sites have been located. Um, Snow's Island, the camp on Snow's Island, has never been found. Why? That's a great question. Um, Snow's Island's a big place. It's uh, uh, it's not a very well-defined place, at least historically. I mean, you got three. You've got the Big PD, Lynch's River, and Clark's Creek. Uh, and you've got certain areas of high ground that are likely candidates. Nothing's been found on them yet. You know, Marion <clears throat> didn't always describe his location with any great precision. Sometimes he'd say mouth of Lynch's River. Sometimes he would say Snow's Island. You know, what was Snow's Island? Was he referring to an area? Was he referring to a specific place? Steve Smith in his book talks about how Snow's Island was sort of uh, a general reference to a core community, that community of resistance. But there were enough, and it, it, but having said all that, we know that the British capture a depot and destroy all of Marion's arms on Snow's Island in March of 1780. We know from other records and from pension applications in the 19th century that there were um, people who were hiding on Snow's Island with Marion's men. So we, we feel certain there is a camp there. We just haven't found it. We haven't done a, you know, Steve began working on Snow's Island in the 90s. Uh, did find a colonial site that is likely the home of um, one of the people who lived on Snow's Island, but no heavy military occupation. Uh, one of our fears was that, and of course, the river there is dynamic. It I mean, changed, the river bed. I mean, it, it, cha- it changes. It could be. It could be ten feet under mud. Could well, it be? we thought that. We were very worried that you know the the Petey River in. 1780 didn't carry near the sediment it carries now because the land in the Piedmont hadn't been cleared. I've argued with people over whether the PD was more like a black river in those days and, and uh, you know, the orange, reddish orange that it is now, but certainly it didn't have the sediment load uh, until really the middle of the 19th century that it has today. So there was some fear that annual flooding uh, had buried the site. If you're flooding that good slick PD mud every year for 200 and 50 years, uh, you wind up with you know, several feet of accumulation that would make it difficult to get down to the level. The way you find the sites with a metal detector. Is that impossible? If that's the case, well, that wasn't is it impossible? Well, that was what we found. Uh, summer before last, we did a week at Snows Island, and um, we had a geoarchaeologist with us, and we had an auger, and we went out and drilled holes with the auger uh, down to the subsoil, and he was able to determine that um, there has not been in places that we think the camp might be located, there has not been um, that much accumulation of sediment and that the um, metal detecting equipment would pick it up if it's there. So this project that we've been working on that was supposed to happen this week is going to be just a mass metal detector survey by battlefield archaeologists looking for that camp under the assumption that if they're musket balls, buttons, gun parts. I mean, based on the volume of material that came off of Dunham's Bluff, which, again, just guarded the approach, we think, to, to Snow's Island, there, there'll just be a ton of uh, material. But uh, it's it's out there. Uh, it's just the, the river has changed. We've tried to interpret that. Uh, there's been flooding. There's been logging. You know, it's a, it's a dynamic landscape. But all we got to do is find one little piece of it, and I think the rest will come together pretty quickly. The the war ends, right? And Marion does what? Marion, um, well, first of all, he gets elected to the state senate before the war ends, and after the war, uh, he gets made. Um, he gets sort of a plum from the uh, state government. They make him commandant of Fort Johnson in Charleston, and he's commandant of Fort Johnson for several years, and then he retires to his plantation called Pond Bluff on the Santee River. It's now under Lake Marion. It's one of those one of those areas that was flooded when they made the lakes. He marries his cousin. He had never married uh, previously. 
and they live several years happily together, and he dies in 1795 and is buried um, just um, uh, down there uh, off the Santee River's grave sites, a state uh, monument, state parks, things run by the parks department. Buried on his brother's plantation, fortunately, so his grave didn't flood. Uh, his brother Gabriel's plantation was called Belle Isle, and Marion is buried in the cemetery at Belle Isle. Ben, when we've named a university in honor of Francis Marion, I would argue that the the Seinfeld watcher, I talk a lot about that in politics. I mean, you got Republicans and Democrats, and you got Seinfeld watchers who aren't very attuned right. to these sorts of things. What, I mean, obviously, the majority of people who live in this area know that the, the university here mm-hmm. was named after General Marion. That's probably about the extent of their knowledge. Well, mm-hmm. what... What would you like people? I mean, you, you've dedicated a, I don't want to say significant part of your life, but some share of your life to, to understanding better the legacy of Marion. Uh, it goes back to my time on council. I know how passionate you were uh, about the statue and the trail yeah. and, the, and the tourism. What, what would you want people to know about Marion? Well, I mean, it's a fascinating story. I think it's a story that plugs us in more to the people in the revolution. And uh, again, you got your toy soldier historians who want to talk about battles all the time and, you know, all the things that unfolded on the battlefield. And that's great, but it doesn't really get us very far in terms of understanding ourselves and understanding our country and our country's history. I think Marion is a window, his leadership, because his leadership was so attuned to the people who lived here, that understanding Marion's leadership helps helps us start to make inquiry into okay why were these people acting this way what why was their allegiance this way or that way um, h- how did people really feel it is very hard to tell you go in the the um, the primary sources and they're just all over the place and you find a lot of people would be. Tories when the British were marching through and, and Whigs or Americans when the American forces were marching through. And, you know, the, the, the subtleties of the, the, um, the communal dynamics that were going on in the backcountry in the revolution is something I'm very fascinated by and would like to understand better why certain people chose one side or the other. you got to remember that we didn't have any government in the backcountry until almost the eve of the revolution. There was a great... Um, uh, movement in the late 1760s called the Regulator Movement. There were no courts or jails in the backcountry. If you wanted to sue somebody, you had to go to Charleston. If you wanted somebody arrested, you'd have to, you know, get somebody to take them to jail in Charleston. Everything was focused on the the, the low country, and the backcountry just had no infrastructure. And I think that suited certain people fine, uh, but people who, you know, were trying to build property and wealth and stability in their lives, wanted courthouses and jails. And so the regulators uh, resisted, uh, for instance, they would they did two things primarily. They took justice into their own hands and they would, you know, they whipped people and tarred them and feathered them and, you know, dispensed sort of frontier justice. But they also interfered with the service of process. If somebody was getting sued by a Charleston merchant, they would, you know, catch the process server and tear up the writ whip him and send him back to Charleston. And it came to a head, uh, at least in this part of the state, in what's now Florence County at Mars Bluff, an African-American named Gideon Gibson, a free African-American, was the leader of a, of a regulator force. And um, he st- stood up to the British government. There was actually a or the colonial government. There was actually a, a pitched battle fought uh, in Mars Bluff in 1768, August of 1768, which we've commemorated in the lobby of the courthouse. I don't know if you've been in to see that, but there's a great mural uh, by Bobby Gary or a large canvas that hangs that shows that incident. But um, uh, the regulators were the first call for government in the backcountry. Uh, and in 1769, they, uh, the colonial government, they tried once in the, the Board of Trade in London vetoed it, but then in 1769 they passed a circuit court act where they built courthouse, <coughs> courthouses and jails in the backcountry. And that was really the, the, that was five years before the war started. So people, you know, had been striving for uh, government stability and structure, yet I would say if you had to, to give it to one side or the other, and the, the 
results of the war bear this out, you know, most folks wound up opposing the British government. They were they were not, um, uh, you know, the, the the balance of power in this part of the world swung pretty heavily toward the Americans during the course of the war, uh, despite this sort of aspiration that that folks had. I think they were without government for so long, uh, and so many came here. You got to remember, so many immigrants came here because they were. Uh, Protestant minorities uh, or dissenters in Great Britain uh, in the 18th century. They were Scots-Irish Presbyterians or Lutherans or, or French Huguenots, and they they wanted to get away from government. So they you know settled up here, and they had their churches, and they were just fine. They didn't need anything else. But then, as as I say, as, as wealth began to accumulate, as crime became more rampant, you know, the PD was known as a uh, sort of haven for horse thieves and um, you know, we were kind of a, I was talking to a reporter about this recently. I like to think of the PD as kind of a big eddy in the stream of colonial settlement in South Carolina. You had so much coming into the low country and then down the great wagon road into the Midlands. The PD was sort of off in this corner of the state with a great expanse of eastern North Carolina above it. And it became a place where, I mean, they were good, honest, hardworking settlers, but they were also a lot of sort of sketchy people, uh, horse thieves and um, bandits around, and as as people began to sort of grow roots, they wanted more from government. They wanted protection. They wanted justice. Uh, they wanted to be able to protect their property and their families. And so uh, the regulator movement was a sort of first flowering of that. Uh, and one would think that, well, gosh, that would have, if they were so uh, desirous of the protections of the British government, certainly they would have all been Tories, but they weren't, um, and that's fascinating to me. Why? Why would someone have taken the American side? Now, I think there was um, there was a good deal of animosity toward the colonial government as a result of the um, of the regulator movement. I think that had something to do with it. There were um, colonial elites. I mean, if you think of someone like Marion, he served under William Moultrie in the French and Indian War, and a lot of these folks had gone off and fought in that war, and they had served under uh, prominent low country um, men who commanded some of these regiments that went off and fought. And if you were, you know, a, a, someone who was a enlisted man in uh, a regiment, say the upper PD regiment from up in what's now Darlington and Chesterfield, Marlboro counties, and you served under a well-heeled Charlestonian as your officer, and he was who you looked up to and you aspired to be. Uh, and you might aspire to be, you know, to have his lifestyle and, and what he has, you know, after the war, you've seen, you know, someone like that. Well, so many of those Charleston elites were were firmly on the American side and were very um, opposed to the to the British. So you saw what they were doing. You it may well have followed their lead, but it's a it's a convoluted and confusing. But being very isn't fluid that the, the anomaly of the American Revolution, it was from the top down. Mm. I mean, it was driven by the aristocratic Thomas mm. Jefferson and mm. John Adams and and Alexander Hamilton. I mean, it was those who probably had more to lose than any other revolutionary. I mean, revolutions in history have always been kind of a groundswell of animus toward the elites. This was kind of the elites driving the train. What do you believe was the driving emotion of the disdain even the elites had for British rule? I mean, that's much bigger than Mary. And I'll agree with that. That, That's conceptually about the American experience of of man governing man. And I guess that goes back to John Locke and and some of the era of enlightenment. But, But, I mean... What do you think inspired the elites of that day to want to be a part of a revolution, of which Francis Marion was a big part of? Yeah, well, it's certainly um, it is certainly uh, true that there was there were geographical differences. I mean, obviously, the New Englanders were the great leaders, and and the fact that South Carolinians supported the New Englanders when the early dust-ups were happening, the Boston Tea Party and the Boston Massacre and all that stuff. Because that doesn't really make sense, Ben. Well, it made sense for their, you know, they they were so much more um, uh, dependent on Britain for um, uh, goods and uh, they were exporting goods and all of the tariffs and duties and things and all of the acts that were uh, put in place basically to pay for the French and Indian War. You know, that's that whole effort to tax the colonies to pay for the French and Indian War is what started rubbing folks the wrong way. 
uh, and it became a, um, a sort of a cause celeb in the colonies, and that then generated, you know, of course, it, it wasn't a foregone conclusion at all uh, that that the rebellion was going to, um, the resistance was going to be a true rebellion. Uh, and if you read carefully the, the history that leads up to the Declaration of Independence, I mean, it wasn't a um, wasn't a, a off you know a unanimous thing that we would become a separate country. I think many many people who fought for the American cause hoped for reconciliation. They hoped the change, and, and indeed the British government attempted in the late 1770s to say, okay, if you come back in, we'll uh, give you these concessions. But by that point, it was it was too late. But I think your point is exactly right that. So much of it was led from the top down, and the uh, the great men theory of history, both broadly but also locally, that these local communities, whether it was the Charleston elites or whether it was big men in backcountry communities, they really controlled a lot of the thought um, uh, of of their of their neighbors and and their allegiances. Uh, so I think that's a, a great point, and it it is a different it's a different type of revolution than had been seen before or is normally seen. Was Marion perceived differently in the backwoods as he was by the Charleston elites? Oh, yeah. Well, of course, the British, if you read their descriptions of him, he's just this skulking, sleazy... A scoundrel? Scoundrel. You know, the whole fox thing, which we think is a great compliment. Call somebody a fox in the 18th century, at least if you were... Tory, if you called someone a fox, that would just you know, be like calling them a weasel. Um, of course, there's a play on words. One of the great Whig leaders was a man named Charles James Fox, who was a British politician who favored the Americans, and so they played on the term fox. His last name was Fox. Um, but he was viewed by the, and you read the articles in the Charleston papers that reference him during the war, he was just this, he was basically like a a, a, a vagabond, um, vagrant robber um, who's stealing around and attacking people at night and doing, you know, all sorts of unscrupulous things. If someone, last question, yeah. you've dedicated, once again, a large share of your time. You're a smart guy. You understand it. You, you try to digest it and, and make heads or tails of it. If someone wants to start down that road, yeah. I mean, I, I go to Litchfield a lot, yeah. and I'll drive by that yeah. statue. Yeah. And, and I remember the conversations you and I had yeah. early on. I mean, trying to convince a, a Republican office holder to fund a statue and be a part of, yeah. you know, uh, heritage tourism. Nah, we're talking about limited government, right. that, you know, right. but, but you convince me. No, this is a very important part of our heritage, our history. It's who we are. It's what we're about. If someone wants to travel that road, take that journey, where do they start? Yeah. Well, um, that's a great question and a great point you're making with the question because that's what we really wanted to achieve with the Trail Commission. The Trail Commission got went great guns and we got all the archaeology done and we got a master plan done that won a national award and then the recession hit in 2008 and everything kind of uh, went dormant. Uh, thankfully, it's been resurrected and our mutual friend Henry Swink is leading the charge to get the Trail Commission back online. Um, but that that that's a long way of, of or, or by way of explanation that there is not sort of one central place you can go to understand Marion. It's very Should there be? I think Do we owe him that? So the, the idea that we had with the Trail Commission was that we would have interpretive centers at each place where you could get off on I-95 at 327 or 52 at I-26 or someplace in Myrtle Beach or someplace over on I-20 where people could come into the region and could learn something on the front end about Marion and then go to places. Uh, very few of the of the sites are, are, are accessible and we want to change that. I think there are going to be some changes to some sites in the next few years. that are going to make them more uh, accessible. Um, so much about Marion is the landscape and fighting a guerrilla war in the landscape. So get out, go paddle the Lynch's river or the PD river. That'll give you a flavor of the country he was in. Uh, I've always thought that, you know, conserving land, it always was a nice sort of marriage of conservation and history that, you could better understand Marion by just understanding the context in which he was. You can go to places like Fort Moultrie. Marion fought in the Battle of Fort Moultrie, which is a great Fort Sullivan, it was called during the Revolution. Um, you can go to his grave, which is just down there near Pineville uh, in Berkeley County. Um, you can go to their various, you know, just about every museum 
in the region, whether it's Charleston Museum or the Florence County Museum, will have something about Marion. Um, trying to think of the sites that are accessible. The Battle of Utah Springs that Marion fought in, at least part of that battlefield is still above the lake. Um, you can go to St. Michael's Church in Charleston where Marion, when he was stationed there, used to make his men go worship every Sunday, and if they weren't properly shaved, he would make sure they got dry shaved in front of the whole uh, the whole regiment. I mean, there, there are lots of different sort of scattered places where you can get a feeling and a flavor uh, for where Marion was. Do but, you feel different? Do you feel like you're standing on sacred or holy ground when you get near where you know Marion was? The point I'm trying to make, Ben, is, I mean, America changed the world forever. Right. I mean, the majority of rights and, and, and uh, dignity came as a, as a benefit of the king or the dictator, or the monarch, or some other mm. in a controlling government apparatus. I mean, you talked a second ago about Tories and freedom fighters and whatnot. But, but I mean, the, 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 the essence of the world changed mm. when, when America worked. Mm-hmm. When when man begun when, when man began governing man by the consent of casting a ballot, mm. I mean, that's really and truly what America became, and that's, that, that that has influenced the world, the Western world in particular. But but do you get a sense of wow? I mean, here I am, where where, where uh, a ragtag bunch mm-hmm. of militia mm-hmm. held off the most powerful army on the planet, mm. and as a result of that. The world is fundamentally different. Mm. No, I think that's a great point, and and that's one of the things I used to say a lot when I was in, in charge of the Francis Marion Trail Commission. That you know history has changed oftentimes from the unlikeliest places by the unlikeliest of people, and it's a great lesson that you know you might think what you're doing is insignificant or you're just on the periphery. I mean, keep in mind Horatio Gates literally laughed at Marion and told him to go off and and be a in essence be a scout for him. And Gates is annihilated and is remembered in a great degree of infamy now. And Marion, you know, became a hero and helped change the course of the war. Um, I think, yeah, I, I get, you know, when we were on Snows Island, uh, I'm not ashamed to admit it, but we walked out on a piece of high ground on Snows Island a couple of summers ago with that auger, and it, my hair on the back of my neck stood up, and I said, this is it. This has got to be it. The reason I was saying that is it looked just like the, the paintings, of course, which are all imagined. Turned out it wasn't it, but um, uh, it's emotional. It's emotional, and it is it's subtle, and it's not the sort of great men theory of history. It's not sort of toy soldier history. You really have to get into people and why people do the things they do, both individually as gr- and as groups, and how someone like Marion can tap into that and um, exploit it, for lack of a better term, for for military success. But no, he's he is I would say our greatest hero uh, and our greatest exemplar. And he's, again, he's been used for good and for bad. But, um, you know, I grew up around here and I got half a dozen ancestors who fought with Francis Marion. And I grew up with a great deal of pride uh, based on that fact. And I always thought that if I could, you know, if you could go back and meet one person in history, who would you want to meet? I used to say Francis Marion. I'm not sure. Who this is the now. craziest question I can ask, but I got a busy head. Yeah. Do you ever play out what if Marion isn't effective? Yeah. What if he's not successful? Yeah. What What if the British overwhelm? Yeah. What if he makes bad strategy intact? Mm. Do, do you ever th- hypothesize about called, called a counterfactual? Okay. Well, what what yeah. would the world look like today? Yeah. Had the British done what everybody expected them to do, and Horatio yeah. Gates expected that as well? Yeah. Yeah. That Marion fails. Yeah. I, you know, <clears throat> the end of the American Revolution was so sort of sloppy in terms of just all the things that were going on with different groups fighting uh, around the South. Um, and it's just, it's hard to say uh, that if not Marion, it, it wouldn't it wouldn't have happened. I mean, I think Marion made a huge difference, and I would not like to, I would not like to think of what it, you know, how hard it would have been had he not been doing what he was doing. Um, but, you know, we, if you study the revolution closely, you study the diplomacy, you study the policy that was going on in Parliament. I mean, we came real close to reconciliation. Uh, we came close to stalemate and just kind of a divvying up. I mean, the American, the United States of America could have been just a handful of northeastern colonies very easily. And that would have been a win for the British. I think the British government in 1780, if they could have just carved off Virginia, North Carolina, South Carolina, and Georgia, 
uh, they would have said, that's a good day's work. You know, you pain in the rear, uh, New England Yankees can have your, your rocky coastline where we've got the, the broad agricultural lands of the South and we'll do just fine. And, you know, the British had many, many more colonies and that was part of the calculus. You know, the West Indies, which of course, most of that was were British colonies until the second half of the 20th century. Uh, they're, uh, sort of um, sphere of influence could have easily been just basically Virginia South. I keep saying last question, but I could go on forever. I want to be respectful of your time. Did blacks fight with Marion? Yes, we know. We know specifically in the description where we know that Gates laughed or Gates's men laughed at Marion that his men were twenty men and boys, some white, some black, but all miserably equipped. And I think one of the things we lose sight of, and this goes again into how much the world changed in the you know four or five decades after the revolution, the backcountry was a place that was a lot more sort of racially fluid than we when we think of we think of the South uh, uh, before the 20th century. You say, well, it was always slavery, and it was always this very you know heavily sort of segregated society. Slavery was obviously prevalent. Um, but there were lots of free African-Americans, and there were free African-Americans who owned slaves. Gideon Gibson uh, Gideon Gibson was a, a Whig, and he was killed in cold blood by his uh, nephew during the war um, in what's now Marion County. He was shot, shot in cold blood and, and killed. Um, there were definitely um, not only African-Americans, but probably some Native Americans and um, other folks who fought with Marion. Appreciate your time. Thank you, Ken. Thank you very Fun much. Fun being with you. Really enjoyed that. Yep. Hope you did as well.